Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, and welcome back to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times about the joys and challenges of starting a business. I'm Jonathan Moles. Jeff Watts and Julia Fowler co-founded Edited, an innovative fashion tech company that brings data analysis to the retail industry. They told me how the idea came about. Back in Australia, I was a designer and felt really frustrated with the lack of data we had to make decisions. So as a designer, your job is to make things that people want to buy. You're making the decisions months, if not years, in advance of these products being in store. And there was very little data to base that decision-making process on. So I really wanted something that would help me in my job and make sure that we were making products that were going to sell rather than, you know, having to discount and shred products that didn't. Yeah, so I'm Australian as well. I happen to work for a dairy company and we had this ridiculously instrumented supply chain. We knew everything about, we knew about demand, we knew about weather and how that influenced demand. We knew about the quality of the product on its way to the plant. And, you know, we had all of these metrics on dashboards. And this was 10, 12 years ago. And I just thought that's how business worked. And then Julia told me how her business worked. And I was like, there's some efficiencies there, maybe. So that was really the genesis of the idea, I think. And yeah, we came from really different backgrounds and just ended up sitting next to each other, telling each other about what we did at work one day. And that's kind of where it came from. We both met racing cars in Australia, working on rallies and working on preparation for those sorts of things. So we knew we could work well and we both had different qualities that we were bringing to this. So I think that's why it works so well. You're both coming from a different point. You're both bringing your expertise and kind of contributing to make something. But then you sold up everything and moved to London. Why was that? Yeah, we could have either built this business in New York or London. And I think either of those places would have kind of worked. But from an outsider's perspective, London felt like a better place to do it. And I think that when you look at the retail industry in the UK, there's been a lot less sort of consolidation, private equity and things like that. So you've got kind of more mid-sized players that compete with each other really viciously. And so we thought, okay, this is a real proper retail marketplace where the really good operators are. And we kind of thought the US was a bit slower, a bit slower on the uptake with things like e-commerce and things like that. I don't know that that's necessarily true these days, but certainly 10 or 11 years ago when we were looking at the industry, we sort of thought, right, the UK is where this stuff's getting born. And you're also seeing things like Net-A-Porter and ASOS and these days Boohoo, businesses building from very small businesses to very big businesses quickly. And we thought, yeah, that's where we want to go. So yeah, we deliberately up sticks and moved to the UK. Yeah, sold everything we had and moved here and didn't know anyone and then thought, wow, now what? We both did 12 months or so of contracting, yeah. got a few pounds and then started the business. We knew we didn't have a business unless we could sell this thing over the phone because you can always call up someone you know and engage a bit of like hopefully some nepotism or maybe they like your face or whatever and leverage some contacts and get like a sympathy client. But we knew we needed to have a real customer So we built the product, got it sort of working, hired our first person, 
and got our first customer in what, about 12 months, I suppose. Where were you operating? We started in our flat and then rented an office, actually, because we hired someone and we thought, well, we better be grown-ups and have an office if we're going to hire someone. As Jeff said, we had the first product, but we were still working on developing out a lot more. But we started to get inbound interest. So we hadn't done any marketing. We didn't have a sales team, nothing at all. But we started getting people approaching us and saying, hey, we've seen what you're doing and it looks really interesting to us. So we're like, oh, okay, great. You know, well, this is a good sign. And yeah, we, we just did demos and over the phone. And in it South was... Africa too, which was important to us because we didn't want to sell to someone down the road and we didn't want to sell to someone back in Australia where we maybe had a bit of a network. But like, we wanted to make sure that we could sell this thing internationally over the internet, over the phone. And so that customer, first customer, still a customer. We haven't told them that they're our first customer. Well, I'm sure they thought we were much bigger than we were. And I think that's the thing. When you're starting out, it's really important to project that. You know, I mean, people say fake it until you make it, but you do need to do that. We work with a lot of corporate clients. I mean, we only work with really big retailers. So they need to have that comfort level that we're a solid product. We were never faking the product or what it could do, which I think is where people mess this up. What we were faking was that... We were a sizable organisation that was very sure that we were going to deliver on this thing and it was going to work well and all those sorts of things. But we were convinced that the product worked well. And maybe you should say exactly what it is you do do. Well, if you're a retailer, you want to get a couple of things right. You want to get your prices right and you want to get the products that you carry right. And that's the most important thing. If you're buying and selling stuff, those are the two things that you really want to have buttoned up. And that's what we help them do. So we've got a tool for the people inside the business that are called buyers and merchandisers that decide what to carry and how to price. Helps them make really good decisions. So the best way to think about it, imagine what Bloomberg do. Bloomberg Terminal, if you're a trader, you need that every day to kind of make your decisions and it gives you data in real time. Very, very similar to what we do, but for retail. Yeah, these people inside retailers are making trading decisions themselves. So they're deciding what types of products they should be buying, how they should be priced, when they should discount, whether they should replenish. Uh, the most important commercial decisions in retail. Yeah. The technology was brand new, so we kind of had to come up with everything from scratch. So had to invent the language to describe some of this stuff, which was weird. These were processes that they were trying to carry out manually inside their businesses. And so they, you know, had huge Excel spreadsheets and had people literally spending weeks on end trying to look at what was selling across the market. In those days, they'd walk around with a dictaphone in their pocket. These days, people use their mobile and they'd, you know, they'd be describing products saying how much they cost and what the origin of them was onto a dictaphone, going back to the office, typing it up, putting it in a big book, and then sharing that book with their colleagues every six weeks. And that was the oh, best retailers weeks, were doing that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, most normal retailers might only be able to do that exercise once or twice a year. So with our product, they can do it in real time and they can be making those decisions anytime something changes in the market. What do you think convinced them that you were this big tech company? <laughs> I don't know if we convinced them of that, but we convinced them that we had something that was maybe worth having a look at. So it's kind of all about the product. I think when you give the product to people and it's pointing in the right direction, even if it's not doing everything they want it to do, but if it's doing the first few things that they need, that gives them a bit of hope that, you know, you might figure it out along the way. It's almost an intuitive thing. People don't necessarily know. They couldn't necessarily have drawn this product on a piece of paper for us and said, make this. But when we gave it to them and got them to poke around at it, they were kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe this is going to do some of the things that we need it to do. You've not only succeeded in carving out this market here, but in the tech world, you're employing more women the men. What's the secret? 
I think we're about, what, 70% women for a technology company. That's very uncommon. Yeah, and lots of women in engineering and product and lots of women in leadership as well. I guess our product and what we're doing is very interesting to people who have either experience in the retail industry or an interest in the retail industry. But also in retail, it's a highly competitive industry. There are a lot of people who are very qualified, very skilled, very smart. I mean, even an assistant buyer might be in charge of a multi-million pound budget for socks, for example. So they're making really high profile decisions. So we've been very fortunate in being able to attract people who have these amazing skills and have maybe realised that the life inside a retailer, which is particularly cutthroat, is, yeah, maybe not for them. And like Julia says, you know, you've got so many people want to work in fashion and retail and so few people get in. That's a great sort of vetting process for us. If you've had a couple of years in a retailer and you, and you want to do something else, we can hire great, great talent. And, you know, it's much like there's a lot of men in engineering, there's a lot of women in retail. So it's kind of, you know, the, the gender balance in the other direction sort of helps us out. Something else that people might not realise is a lot of people who go into buying and merchandising roles didn't necessarily study fashion at university. They often come from law backgrounds, economics. So, yeah, it's not what you think. And how do you find those people? Well, hopefully they don't always come out of our customers, but actually a fair few of them do sometimes. And that can get awkward if you hire too many from one customer. So we try not to do that. But yeah, oftentimes it's people that are passionate about the product. So they've used the product or seen it or met us along the way somehow. It's changed their lives and they've said, hey, I want to be involved in this. So Julie, you started in design. Now you're a tech entrepreneur. Do you not miss the past? There's definitely things that you miss. But like I said before, the essence of design is building products that people want and so there's a lot of transferable skills you're problem solving you're having to think creatively when you're starting a company you're going to come across situations that you've never encountered before and you have to kind of figure out a way to make things work so I think that a lot of the skills that you have in design and that you learn through that process have really helped me in this role now. Is the business model enabling you to grow faster now you've got to a certain scale? Business has been profitable on and off at various different times. And yeah, we were lucky enough to secure some venture funding from Index Ventures and a few others a few years ago and some very helpful angel investors. And that was great. The thing that we're thinking now, though, is this is potentially something that can actually make retail more efficient. And retail's undergoing a lot of pressure at the moment. And I think the thing that we're doing it right now is we're taking our product to general retail, not just apparel retail. And we know that retailers that deploy the product trade a lot better. So, yeah, I think it's a really exciting time. We're looking to build quite a big business. And I think if we get it right and keep going at the growth rate that we're going at, we've got a potential to build a world-beating business that could do, you know, many hundreds of millions a year of revenue. Amazon are in the business of, of walking through the industry and taking retail markets off people that sell undifferentiated products, right? So your options if you're a retail CEO is have differentiated products, so carry things that Amazon can't get their hands on, or do a better job of being Amazon than Amazon. But it's quite good for you having Amazon out there. That's some big incentive for everyone else to 
buy your services. Yeah, I think it's incredible for us. I think every retail CEO is also trying to build an in-house capability to sort of have a data science team. They all want to hire software engineers. They all want to become software companies because they feel this existential threat from all the retail margin evaporating and going towards the people who built software. So if you want to compete with that, you do need to become a software company as a retailer. And I think that's fantastic for us. That speaks directly to what we do. And we've got a great set of tools for retailers that are aiming to do that. But we've been able to get a hell of a long way by raising a modest amount of capital, being capital efficient and building a great company. Obviously, you're fairly judicious about the bets that you make. So opening New York at the board, that was a contentious discussion, wasn't it? Because that was a fairly big investment. We didn't have loads of capital and deciding to go rent an office and hire some people in New York was one of the bigger bets that we'd make. Whereas I think if we had just buckets of capital, of course we would have opened in New York. And who are the competition? I guess the biggest competition we have is processes internally within retailers. They try to do these sorts of things manually. That can be a problem for adoption. But I think once people realise that it's not going to negatively impact them in their role, they're quite quick to come around. You also have the issue where maybe some people are not so confident with technology. That's definitely something that comes up every so often. Some retailers try and build it themselves and that's happened. Comes with our bigger customers at the moment actually went through a two-year process of building whole teams around sort of trying to build the equivalent of what we do. I think I get it. I think if I ran a retail business I'd think maybe this is a core competency and maybe we should try and build it in-house. So that happens from time to time. And then there's a few players out there trying to do what we do. But, you know, I think we're roundly recognised as market leader. What's the competitive barrier? Quite a few things, actually. There's all the obvious ones, which is the amount of data there is and the time it takes to collect it and the historical data and all those sorts of things. But the real barrier is actually understanding what to do with the data once you've captured it. So one big thing that we do is we just don't trust what the retailers tell us. The retailers will say, this is a tunic, right? And on their website, it'll say it's a tunic. We apply machine learning models and AI and computer vision to understand, is that a tunic and what is it? And how do we align that next to other products from other retailers that kind of look and feel the same? And we can do that in any language even right-to-left languages, so it can be described in Hebrew or Chinese or whatever you like, and we'll be able to unify those products together. That's the hard bit, and that's the bit that people really, really struggle with. The other thing is, too, as a retailer, you understand your own business, but you don't necessarily understand everyone else's. We kind of have to be Switzerland and understand everyone's businesses in the same way. So unless you've got that burden of doing that, it's really hard for you to wrap your head around how other retailers might trade. What have been the most challenging moments for you? All people-related, right? Yeah, I guess as you go from 20 people to 40 people to, you know, 100 people and thinking forwards to when we're 200 people, 500 people, making sure that we still have the same set of shared values, that people are making decisions the right way within the company. I think that's probably one of the things that we think about the most. We want people that come into the business to be given the freedom to operate. And so we kind of think our job is to give them context and freedom and accountability and responsibility. You're saying to this person, hey, manage this thing, figure this thing out. These are the things that we sort of know. These are the things we don't know. Go nuts and do it within this framework. And that works exceptionally well for us. After we do a board meeting, we sit everyone down, run everyone through the board pack, explain it well, and then take questions per department at the front of the room and we do that after every board. Every couple of weeks we have an all hands as well where we get everyone together. So we've got the people in New York and like we've got a couple of people working remotely in Greece and like we've got the guys in San Francisco and stuff. Everyone's on the video conference. It all works and anyone in the room can talk. 
so important for communication. Like companies are made up of people. And if people feel like there's any level of friction with being able to communicate to get their job done, then they're not going to do the best job. So we really prioritise those sorts of things. Anyway, we've gone around the houses here, but what we're coming back to was problems, right? So I think the big problems we've heard have all been people. If we're operating on this principle where we just let people, you know, within reason do what they want, every now and then we'll hire someone who's not aligned with the rest of us and takes it upon themselves to divert the direction of the company. And that's created all the crises, I think, hasn't it? We've had one situation where someone, she just got really aggravated that she wasn't going to get her way and she decided she was going to leave and take half the team with her and like went on this like elaborate scheme to recruit a bunch of the people. And, pages yeah, and quite bizarre behaviour really. Um, and, but you think, oh God, first of all, why is this even yeah, we're going like, we're on? Like, like, we're like, what have we done? Like, yeah. how have we upset this person so much that they want to do this? So you, weirdly, the first thing is you go and look in the mirror and you think to yourself, wow, how could we possibly have upset them that much? Psychopaths are probably really good at interviewing. And so they get through, you know, all your stages. And I mean, I think I'd like to think we have a fairly comprehensive interview process. It's about five <laughs> stages. And, you know, they get into a business as well. They can be very charismatic. And it's not until you're a few months in that you start to realise, okay, maybe there's something not quite right. Yeah, and the decisions this person's making are a little bit malevolent, or maybe there's just something not quite right about the way they're, you know, being the Pied Piper and leading people down one path. You get a vibe for it eventually, and then you're like, wow, how do we get in this situation? Yeah, that's yeah. hard, because you think, oh God, like, well, we've clearly failed, because obviously every time anything stuffs up in the company, it is our fault as the leaders. And so you do look and you think, well, what what have we done wrong? Or you even start to think, oh, should we have asked different questions in the interview yeah, process? Or, or should we have upset this person to the point where they want to behave like this? Like, what have we done? But then once yeah. people start talking about it, and you know, the team then actually start coming to you saying, hey, I've noticed this, or I'm a bit concerned about this, then you realise, okay, it is... It's not our imagination. By the time we figured out someone is really negative and detracting from the company and we want them to leave, the team have known that for weeks or months, you know. So like so by the time by the time we sort of have that difficult conversation, the team are like, Oh well of course, you know, oh yeah, glad you finally figured it out, you know. So, um, yeah. But I think that's a bit of a trope. I think in management most people know that. Interestingly, the biggest problems faced by Jeff and Julia seemed to be related to people who didn't fit in. I asked David de Kramer of the Cambridge Judge Business School for his advice on how to avoid hiring a psychopath. There's an estimate that one in 100 people is likely to be definitely one psychopath. Those are real psychopaths. I think on average, two out of 10 people will always be borderline towards that kind of behavior anyway. There are a few things you can look at to spot them. So science has actually provided a few dimensions and uh, even across your own interviews, you can try to weed them out if possible. And what are those? First of all, a real psychopath, because I want to emphasize if you would uh, answer the psychopathology survey that's out there, which is scientifically based, you're not going to respond to any question with a zero, meaning like, oh, I don't recognize myself in this. There will be many dimensions all of us will say, oh my God, I'm also sometimes trying to get my way and manipulating people. So to some extent, maybe we all have a soft psychopathology in all of us. It just becomes a problem when it's on the extreme side. So I want to add that first. But they are very socially manipulative. So that's why it's very difficult for a layperson to see during an interview, oh, 
that's a psychopath because they know how to manipulate. Because one of the characteristics of a psychopath is that they think in cause and effect. I mean, most of us will do this, but they do this in extreme ways. So if you would ask um, questions about, so how did you work together with your colleagues? What do you expect from your colleagues? They will describe them not so much as humans and having a strong emotional involvement with them, but more as means to get somewhere that they want to get to. So you're saying it may not be a matter as much as spotting the person before you hire them as managing the situation if you have someone like this. That is something you definitely need. You need that management skill because some of them are going to go through the interview. You're never going to notice until you've been working with them for a few months. So that's it. you have to accept that. But there are ways of spotting them out. Like I said, the way people talk about others. So quite often in an interview, it's one-on-one. So I'm interested in you as a person. So most startups will ask the person to tell about himself or herself. Psychopaths are very good at that because they're focused on themselves. It's all about self-interest. Uh, they know how to manipulate the environment for them. So questions you should ask to everyone, basically, interviewing for a job is how they deal with colleagues, provide examples, how they've done this in the past, what they felt about these kind of interactions, what they felt if others are successful around them, how this helps the team. Psychopaths are really bad at this because they have a very low emotional involvement with others. So if you keep asking questions like this, a real psychopath will reveal him or herself by approaching others more like robots in a way rather than emotional human beings they have a connection with. So that's definitely one of the things you can find out. I think teamwork is essential. So I think it's going to be more about what they would like to contribute. And those are usually open-ended questions, what we call. So we, I give you a question where it's not a yes or no response, but it's going to be like, what is your thought about this? their ambitions, what they would like to achieve, the usual question in five or ten years, how they see all these things. Usually psychopaths give very short answers. They also give answers which are not very emotionally laden, like I said, because everything's very instrumental. And again, those are easy questions to pick people on and just say like, look, I'm sorry, this is not what we're looking for. We're looking for team players, but also understand other people. And basically it's about helping each other, as you can see also with the, with the startup that we're discussing. If these people don't work together, they're not going to grow. They're not going to be able to inspire and attract customers as they've done. I asked Jeff and Julia to summarise the lessons from their experience. How does running a business compare to racing fast cars? Maybe the terror lasts for longer. You don't want to be terrorised that often when you're racing fast cars, but it seems to happen almost every day. There's this great sine wave of emotion that you feel starting a company, and I think the amplitude of that decreases over time. It starts to feel less terrifying because you get a bit more used to it, I suppose. I think, yeah, our company's over 100 people now. We've gone through some fairly rapid growth. So, you know, there's definitely very stressful times, and you probably also don't take the moment to take a step back and be like, oh, wow, we've achieved this much already because you're always thinking about like what we're doing next and we have to you know get to the next milestone or oh this part of the business isn't working so well now how are we going to fix it but I'm not sure if it's that everything equalizes out because you know you might start the day feeling great and the end of the day feels terrible or the other way around I think you get used to dealing with crises and they kind of just start to wash over you. And it's like, oh, here's another problem. Oh, well, that's okay, because we know how to fix problems, so I don't know how to fix this one right now, but we'll figure it out. Next week, 
we hear from a computer entrepreneur who wants to take the mystique out of technology and help people build and design their own PCs. Don't forget, you can catch up on previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. And do take a look at our latest subscriber offer, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.